0: At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally-enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal.
1: I think a lot of it just comes from focus. We understand that some of the best athletes, some of the best executives, some of the best military personnel, they have this focus power. That's just unique. And once you learn how to control the emotions that you have within you and focus them in the ways that are aligned with your values and what you're after, you become extremely powerful. And that's one of the things that I really encourage people to do is develop that emotional intelligence, right? Be able to say, I'm angry and I'm angry because of, and because I'm angry, I'm going to then do this. And then that's how you become really focused on what you're gonna use that
0: for. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Before we kick off today's episode, I just want to acknowledge that this installment marks 100 episodes of this show, and honestly, I couldn't be more grateful to you guys for making it what it's become. Whether this is your first episode or if you listened to 99 before this, thank you. If you enjoy this episode today, please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to make sure you can continue to get immediate access to the shows as they release, and please leave a review if you like what you're hearing. Thanks again guys. Now let's jump into the conversation, which I am so excited to bring to you. My guest is Julius Thomas, the former NFL tight end for the Denver Broncos, Jacksonville Jaguars, and Miami Dolphins. Before the NFL, JT was actually a basketball star at Portland state. In fact, he went to the NCAA tournament twice during his career, but he believed he could play professional football. So we went for it, and we're going to talk a little bit about that and what he took from the experience. But most surprisingly is what he's doing today. He retired from football in 2018 to study psychology and is currently going for his doctorate, which he'll get in 2024. Our discussion is going to cover a lot of topics, honestly, including what it took to go from his lowest point where he lost the Super Bowl with the Denver Broncos to his highest point of winning the Super Bowl and getting to Pro Bowls. And with all the success that he had, how did he deal with some of the anxiety of the success that came? And what did he also do to manage the imposter syndrome that naturally all of us deal with on a regular basis? All right, let's get into it. JT, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here, man. Brian, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, really looking forward to our conversation, and
1: hopefully providing some good information that will be beneficial for the listeners.
0: I know you will. I'm looking at your, I'm looking at your background behind you, and my my listeners can't see this, but he's got a basketball jersey, a Pro Bowl jersey, footballs, but also uh, a three dimensional brain. We're going to cover so many topics, and that just kind of personifies uh, it. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick, though. You are the second former NFL player I've had on the show. I'm going to tell you who the first one is, and I want to see if you can figure out, it, it might be pretty obvious, what what the connection is that you that you two have. Uh, Austin Colley, former slot receiver. What's that connection, Julius? Um, I think we
1: both had an opportunity to play with a pretty special quarterback. And... Um, I'm sure we ran a lot of the same routes (laughs) uh, caught some very similar passing concepts.
0: I knew, I knew, you'd know, and that, that, that connection is uh, Peyton Manning. For those who don't know, both, both have uh, caught passes from one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And we're going to talk a little bit about him and later on, but I want to, I want to kick this off because you had a very, I want to say unique, but maybe a different journey into the NFL some people might not have realized you actually were a collegiate basketball player. And you you ended up playing one year of college football, I believe. But but you, you went to the NCAA tournament twice for Portland State. Before we jump into your football career, what, I mean, we're coming up on March Madness. What was that experience like? You
1: no, know, I tell people all the time, uh, I feel like one of the luckiest guys in the world because um, I don't know if there's ever been another athlete that has gotten to play in the NCAA tournament and play in a Bowl, And if you're an American kid, I mean, those are those bucket lists, like pinch me. This is really happening in moments. And I've been able to run out of the tunnel in both of those experiences. And just to really focus on March Madness, like we're talking about now, um, I think one of the beauties about March Madness uh, for me, and I was at a mid-major, is we have to win our conference tournament so you're you going to conference tournament and you know that you know one of these teams from your conference is going to get to represent that conference the ncaa tournament and you're going to get to have this moment um, that you've always dreamt of and we were really successful won our conference and then you get the selection sunday so the, the campus has a buzz about it right you're walking around people are excited they're talking about what you guys are doing how they want to watch and then you know, you're really close with this group of 12 guys. You go down to Buffalo Wild Wings. You're all sitting there together. There's cameras, media, um, administrators. Like, no one's more excited about the team than in these moments. And you hear your name called on Selection Sunday, and you know you're getting ready to go play in one of the biggest games of your life. And uh, really the attention, the excitement around I mean, there's thousands of people at practices for NCAA tournament games. And for me, it was just taking in that whole experience um, and then being able to do it twice was um, really just an incredible, incredible opportunity and something that I'll cherish uh, for the rest of my
0: life. Being a mid-major, who'd you guys face in the in the two appearances? So um, fortunately, with the first year we were 16
1: seed, what made it most exciting about us is this is the first time in school history that we've ever been to the NCAA tournament so the selection committee gave us a 16 seed and we played the one seed which was kansas that year that was the year that kansas won the national championship uh, they had really just a phenomenal team um, i think they're probably top six or seven players all ended up being nba players and then um, the second year we went it was actually the following year we got a 13 seed so we we're like oh this is going to be great we got a really good opportunity maybe we'll be an upset Type team, but we played Xavier, who was a four seed that year, and I think they went on to the elite eight. So we didn't get the best luck with our draws, but I was really happy to be able to play once in uh, Omaha and then once in Boise. Um, but I don't think our, our school's ever been back to the tournament since.
0: That's that's a cool experience. And so you you played played college basketball, and your your last year you you decided to play football? What made you make that decision to kind of jump in and and play college football?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, for me, I always had this regret that I didn't play football in high school. Um, I really come from a football area. I mean, Stockton, California is much more known for producing football players than basketball players. And when I got to college, I really wanted to be a two-sport athlete. So I go, so I'm a freshman on campus. I go talk to the football coach. I'm like, hey, I want to come play receiver. And he says, man, we, we love to. We don't say no to six, five receivers. <laughs> so I go talk to the basketball coach and he goes, absolutely not. You're going to play forward. That's what you're going to do. And then some coach said it in passing. The guy wasn't even a coach when I ended up going out for the football team. But he said, you know, if you don't redshirt, you'll have an extra year of eligibility. You can use it and play football. And that kind of just, sat in the back of my mind and then throughout college I would always say like oh I'm gonna play I'm gonna play um but I didn't want to look back at life and watch football on Sundays and always be sitting on my couch thinking ah I could have done this I could have done this so um, you know I followed that little voice and decided to give it a shot.
0: I think it's cool because it's it was kind of and we can call it and, and you can appreciate this kind of the golden age of NFL understanding that basketball players have a little bit of uh, some skill sets that could transition. I mean, wh- one of the better tight ends in the league, I think Antonio Gates played basketball, right? He, he came out of that very same thing. Um, so so you went and you had some success, I mean, and got invited to the combine. What was it like? You played one year of football. You have this basketball background. What was it like preparing for the NFL combine?
1: Whew. That was probably one of the most difficult emotional experiences that I'd ever had in my life. Um, talk about not feeling prepared to be able to do something. Talk about feeling like, who am I? Why do I belong here? Like, I'm just a guy from Portland State. I was playing basketball a year ago that time. Like, the combine's in February. That February, I was in the middle of the senior year basketball season. And when I showed up to the combine, I think that I came in with the right level of humility. Some part of me knew that the guys there were better football players. Some part of me knew that there is a ton of questions that these scouts, um, coaches, team management are going to ask that I am not going to know. Like I didn't, I didn't know very many plays. I didn't know concepts, defenses. I didn't know run schemes. So I just felt like the only chance I have is just to go here and give my best. Like, what are the things that I can do really well and how do I execute those at a high level? And then I just have to be okay with the things that maybe I haven't had enough time to develop. But it was um, probably the biggest feeling of imposter syndrome I'd ever had in my life.
0: Yeah, it feels like one of those things where you say you're kind of looking at it and you just had to control what you could control, right? Yep. You, you can't control the things you don't know. You just have to maximize the things you can't control.
1: Well, even worse, I couldn't control the things that I knew I might be expected to control. Like I was playing tight end. I knew I wasn't going to bench press 225 25 plus times. I knew that there's these certain metrics that they really like to see. I didn't, I didn't have enough time to develop the strength necessary to do that. Um, I knew they were going to ask me questions about the game of football. And I knew I was going to sit down in front of these coaches. The crazy part about the combine is you meet with every single tight end coach from every single team at the end of a long day after you've been training in and out of medical examinations all day, and you sit down with a paper and a pad and they ask you questions. I knew I wasn't going to be able to talk to them about football. I was still learning it. Um, but what I knew I was gonna be able to do really good was interview. Cause I had some interviewing skills. I was a human resource manager. I knew I would run well, and then I told myself, the one thing you won't do is drop a ball. You will catch every single ball that's thrown. Like spend your energy and your focus on the things you're great at and accept the the shortcomings or the deficits you have because you're not gonna be able to fix those in this moment. You gotta build that later on if this dream or this opportunity of playing football uh, continues to move forward.
0: With all those interviews, what did you take away from the combine?
1: Um, I think the thing I took away from the combine most was that I could catch the ball pretty well. Um, I thought that some of the coaches were frustrated with like how to conduct an interview uh, with me because they They weren't able to ask their typical questions. So they would ask me weird stuff like, um, well, what are your favorite basketball plays? Can you draw basketball plays? Yeah, I I can draw you any play you want. What, What position do you want me to draw you from? Do you want me to show you what the point guard does, the shooting guard, the center, forwards?
0: So they kind of wanted to test your critical thinking skills more so than like your football IQ. Yeah, some did. Some got very creative,
1: you know, then you'd get weird stuff like, well, have you ever been in a fight before? Tell me how the fight went. (laughs) And they're trying to get an idea of, you know, how will you handle physicality, contact. Um, Some coaches didn't have much to say. They just said, you know, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, But maybe I wasn't a fit for them. I think I was also very um, at peace with the fact that I wouldn't be a fit for everyone. I think that sometimes you can get into this place of saying, oh, I want to impress all 32 coaches. Well, I didn't need to impress all 32 coaches or all 32 teams. I needed to impress one and I needed to blow them away so that they would give me a chance.
0: Do you remember the, and so spoiler alert, anybody who follows the NFL knows Julius got drafted in the, in the fourth round to the Denver Broncos. Do you remember that interview? And do you remember thinking this is, this is where I might go and this is why?
1: Yes, very clearly this story will probably be very interesting for you because you have some of my background, but uh, you have an interest in sports. So at the combine, I was able to um, be interviewed by a tight end coach, his name was Clancy Barone, that was in Denver, who had previously been Antonio Gates coach in San Diego. So he was the most receptive coach to me and he just seemed to be really okay with talking to me about basketball talking to me about Antonio Gates and Antonio Gates transition and how they were able to support him and work with him through that. Um, and then he was actually one of the four or so coaches that showed up to my pro day, uh, about a month after the combine. So it's Portland, it's raining. The pro day had a bunch of guys out there. And so he asked me like, Hey, you know, would you be okay conducting the rest of our, um, drills that i want to see you do in the gym i remember this overwhelming feeling of happiness elation because i felt more comfortable in that gym that's your environment i played 130 games in that gym i was out of cleats and i was back in my hoop shoes like i literally ran down to the locker room threw my basketball shoes on and i ran routes in basketball shoes in our gym for the rest of our uh, pro day workout and then I take it a step further. I always tell people, rig your future. So I kind of knew that he would be a coach that I would like to work with. So all these coaches, they give you your, their card at the end of the uh, combine or pro day. They say, yeah, call me if you ever need anything. But I made a point to call him about every two weeks. When I was down in LA training, I would call him, hey, coach, how's it going? I Like I said, I just needed one team to fall in love with me, one team to give me a shot. And I would always reach out to him. So... On draft day, I really hoped that I would end up in Denver. I was like, you know, I had a great relationship with that coach. Denver's close to home, but not too close. And lo and behold, uh, the Denver Broncos selected me, 129th pick in the fourth round.
0: Knowing you had so much to learn getting drafted. I mean, first of all, I can imagine that draft day was amazing, right? You get your name called, but then all of a sudden that elation switches to, I have a lot of work ahead of me, right? So what was your mentality and focus going into, um, OTAs in the off season and training camp, knowing that you had something to prove essentially what, what was, what was that mentality like for you?
1: Yeah, I I promise you, I really can't make this story up. I mean, so many crazy things were happening in that point in my life. And for me, it was just crazy to get drafted. Because when I started playing football the year before, I told myself the only thing I need to come as a result of me playing football this one year is just a workout. Like if I can get a workout or a camp invite, that's a huge win. So to get drafted shows what faith and prayer and the Lord does for people because I was I way overshot that like so many things happened perfectly for that to happen. but. One of the scariest things for me that produced a lot of fear, really, was um, after I got drafted, knowing that I still wasn't a good enough player as I wanted to be or what I thought it was going to take to be to stick in the NFL, the lockout started. So if there was a player in the history of football that ever needed OTAs, it was me. And there is no OTAs that year and there's no answer to when football is going to come back and start. And I knew really well that i wasn't a good enough route runner because all combine preparation i was with some really good high major receivers guys that were going to get drafted and they were just no question about it better route runners than me and uh, i actually asked a friend of mine because i was broke i didn't have any money it's like in one sense you're a fourth round draft pick and the money's going to come but in the one sense it hasn't showed up yet so um, I actually had a friend from Portland and she was living down in LA and her and I were pretty close. Um, we had another mutual friend we were very close with. And I asked her, I was like, you know, I really need to be in LA training. There's a great wide receivers coach there. I need to work out with him. And there was a great place um, like where we worked out and trained at a facility. So I asked her, I said, can I stay with you um, for a couple of months while I train? And she's like, yeah, sure. You can stay with me. But like, You know, I don't have any room really in my place. So I actually slept on her couch for two months. Uh, I'll never forget that experience of just taking those couch cushions off the couch because I was too long to fit on the couch (laughs) and sleeping on the floor for a couple months because I'm one of those people that I'm going to do whatever it takes to be successful. So if that means you're a fourth-round draft pick in the NFL, but you got to sleep on the floor on couch cushions to make it and get better and train, Um, I'll do that 10, 10 out of 10 times.
0: I love that story. It's, it's kind of that by any means necessary mentality. And you touched on imposter syndrome earlier on. And I think that's so important because there's so many people that deal with that and they, they don't always have the outlets to be able to express themselves and do that. But I think even for you, you're coming out of, you're coming out of being a college basketball player primarily Um, having a little bit of success playing football, but getting drafted and getting drafted in the fourth round, which isn't, I mean, you weren't Mr. Irrelevant. You were, you were somewhere in the middle. And when you're a fourth round draft pick, you're expected, I mean, you might get a year grace, but you're expected to pan out. Um, So you're coming in thinking, I need to get better. I'm worried that I I would imagine you're thinking, I'm worried they're going to find out I can't play. Is that, was that something you were feeling? Um, I don't think that
1: I was most worried that I wasn't going to be able to play. I think I was most worried with how I would handle the learning curve. Um, I was did really well in the East-West Shrine game. Um, I thought in that moment, like, okay, like, I can play. I can play with these guys. But what I wasn't sure about was how am I going to take to the acumen necessary to play football at a high level? I couldn't tell. I'll never forget. I remember being in training camp and getting that playbook for the first time and going, I don't just need to learn the concepts. I need to learn the
0: words. I I don't have the vocabulary necessary to do this. And when you, when you say you don't have the vocabulary, give us a, a, a glimpse into that.
1: Yeah. So like anytime you, Learning a new discipline, you got to learn the vocabulary associated with it. So for an example, in psychology, I got to understand what imposter syndrome is. I have to understand what's insomnia, what's depression, what's anxiety, what are the things associated with that? So in the NFL, like you have to learn um, not just which direction right or left the run is going in, but what's a counter, what's a gap scheme, what's a zone scheme. what is cover three, what is uh, down safety? Like you gotta learn what these words mean. You gotta learn where these people are usually lined up that are associated with those words. And I felt like I had to learn 10 times what the normal look- rookie has to learn. And I felt that, and I, and I really uh, had some difficulties um, with that playbook. Cause we went straight to training camp and, I would stand up every night till two in the morning just trying to learn as much as I could. And I remember when they put me with the starters, I told the the offensive coordinator, like, I don't think I'm ready to go with the starters. And he's like, Why not? I was like, because I just I still haven't learned the plays. And he would always tell me, It's okay, just ask the quarterback. Uh, so one day I asked the quarterback, I said, Hey, you know, I'm I'm gonna be with the ones now, but I'm just gonna let you know right now I don't know the plays. And the quarterback goes, do you think I don't have enough things to do? You want me to tell you what to do with your job too? And I'll say, can't ask that guy what to do on these plays or what to do. For Who was players. the quarterback at the time? Can you tell us? <laughs> it was, uh, it was Kyle Lorden. He was giving me a hard time, um, but halfway hard time, halfway serious. Um, he helped me with, if I absolutely couldn't remember the plays, but the, the receivers did too, you know, um, DT, Eddie Royal, Decker, they would, Tell me the plays, like as we're running down the field, like, you got this. Thanks, God. Thanks. Thanks. But, um, I really put in a lot of work to understand the playbook. But, you know, imposter syndrome is just one of those things where it doesn't matter if you have 10, 15 years of experience. Like, imposter syndrome is not experience dependent. Imposter syndrome, to me, when I really think about it psychologically, it's, um, it's an anxiety about being incorrect, having your facts mixed up, or being found out that you don't know everything. And I experience imposter syndrome all over again going into graduate school and beginning to speak and talk about psychology and neuroscience and always feeling like I just don't know enough. Because you've been exposed to so much and the more you start to learn a discipline, the more you know, the depth of that discipline, the breadth of that discipline, you realize, like, I can't know it all. I can't know it all. And eventually, somebody's going to find out that I don't have the answer. And the way I combat that is I just get comfortable with the fact that I can't know it all. I might misspeak at a lecture, at a conference. A student might ask me a question I do not have the answer for. So it's that combine all over again. Just admit it. Just be okay with the fact that I'm not an imposter. I'm human. I cannot be perfect. Like if there's one thing that being in the NFL taught you is that if you give your best every day and you're one of the best in the world, you will never grade out at 100%. That's what they taught us in the NFL. Like you will never get a. So in the NFL, we get a grade, a sheet that says every single play, did you make a mental error? Did you make a skill error and feedback on how hard they thought you went, how effective they thought that was? So you get this whole grade sheet and you talk about anxiety to go to work already on TV, however many millions of people watching, and then you watch back your work that day with this coach that's highly critical. And you know, like, no matter what I give, I'll never get 100%. And I know that there's going to be some student that asks me a question and I need to just have enough humility to say, let me get back to you next week. Or there's going to be a time, even though I sometimes would get anxiety about doing podcasts for a while. Well, what if I say something about psychology, but it's not right? Or what if I misspeak in the moment because I can't recall the way I would like to. Well, maybe then somebody's going to call me out about it. Maybe somebody's going to write in the comments from this podcast, like, hey, Julius or JT, man, you're off on that. So what? So what I was off. If I'm right 95% of the time, if I'm delivering high quality information, captivating stories, inspirational um, discourse, I could be wrong sometimes. I can misspeak sometimes, but I'm gonna be humble enough to admit they're right. And thank you for that correction and continue
0: moving forward. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's having that growth mindset. I think that's a big thing. The other is I, I've I've heard this from multiple people um, that I've worked with, and they'll tell me that that I I feel I, I seem very confident, and they say it's kind of bordering like cockiness into confidence. And I would always think, how do you know the difference, right? How do you know when somebody is being cocky, and how do you know when somebody's being confident, and only recently did I have an aha moment. I'm listening to um, Relentless by Tim Grover, who trained Michael Jordan and Dwayne Wade and a bunch of other high, high-profile athletes, Kobe Bryant. Um, and he talks about it and he says, cockiness is basically thinking you have the answer and just pursuing that answer no matter what. Thinking this there is no other right answer. This is what it is. Confidence is is knowing that you can select it based on instinct based on experience and if you're wrong you'll deal with the consequences and you know you're confident enough to say okay we need to pivot and go in this direction you know what i might have been wrong there but it doesn't mean that i'm not going to be successful in the end and that's the difference it's not being so bullheaded into into thinking that this is the only right possible answer and i think that's that's an important thing that we all kind of learn and it sounds like something that it's you were just kind of describing it's knowing that you don't have to be right all the time you just know you have a growth mindset and i'm gonna learn today and i'll be right the next time but you're confident enough to know that it's a continual process i mean you're 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 going for your and we haven't even touched on this yet but you're going for your doctorate in psychology knowing that in 20 years from now you're going to know a lot more than you know today Mm-hmm. But it's just continuing to grow just because they're going to put doctor in front, of, in, in front of Julius Thomas doesn't mean you have all the answers. And I think that type of mindset is how we all need to approach everything, not just work, but life, et cetera.
1: Yeah, no, um, I 100% agree, like, you know, confident and cocky. And I've often often too thought about this distinction as well, because sometimes people tell me like, you know, what's wrong with you? So you're playing basketball and you just think to yourself, like, oh, I think I could be an NFL football player. And then you get done with NFL football and you're like, oh, I think I could just go get a doctorate. Are you cocky? Is it confidence? And I think that that growth mindset is right. Um, if you think about guys like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, are they cocky? Are they confident? I don't even think they care. Exactly. What they're very sure of is the fact that they're going to do whatever it takes to reach mastery. And some people that makes them uncomfortable because if they see in you this desire to do whatever it takes to reach mastery, then the dissonance within them is like, why am I not willing to do that? So let me find language that is more negative to describe this person to make me feel better. But then another aspect that separates or differentiates cockiness and confidence for me is repetition. What makes a cocky person is a person that thinks they're going to be good at something that hasn't put in the reps. That person is cocky. They're going to run into failure at this thing. And that's going to be their um, be the example of whether they were cocky or confident, a confident person has done so many reps and knows how bad they're willing to or how much they're willing to give and how bad they want it that they know they're going to get to that point. They don't care the obstacle that comes up and they know that after rep after rep after rep they have this self-efficacy within them of I'm going to figure it out and I'm so persistent I won't stop until I do.
0: Let me ask you this so I'm I'm looking at your stats right now. And I see, I mean, your your rookie season, you played in five games. You had one reception for five yards, zero touchdowns. Um, obviously, a learning season. What, what helped you go from that to 14 games, 65 receptions, almost 800 yards, 12 touchdowns? What, I mean, first of all, did you we talk about confident and cockiness, right? It, it, and from a confidence perspective, did you look and say, this is, this is the type of player I am, this is the type of I'm gonna, a player I'm gonna be, and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to realize that? Is that something you just knew?
1: Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's very interesting for me because my story is so, it's just so atypical. Like, I'm st- I'm, I played one year of college football And I start the first game of my rookie year because I went to training camp and went off like to the point where people, they couldn't believe I was having the success that I was having. I could barely believe that I was having the success that I was having. And I told myself going into that rookie year that I just wanted to be a starter by week 16. And I wanted to be a pro bowler after my second year. And I was actually starting week one versus the oakland raiders who was the team that i grew up being a fan of six all these pinch pinch moments um but on the very first catch of my uh, rookie year i actually tore the ligament between my tibia and my fibula and that kind of sums up the kind of luck i have like yeah first catch in the nfl (laughs) starting at tight end as a rookie playing football one year and you tear the ligament between your tibia and your fibula and I essentially tried to play but the ligament never repaired the way it needed to um so my whole first year was a bust so then I ended up having to have um syndesmosis surgery in April following that season and that's why I missed the entire second year of my career so By the time my third year comes around, I'm seething angry because I feel that life dealt me a bad hand. I felt that the team maybe wasn't appreciating the ability that I had, and I had to show myself and I had to show the world what I was capable of. So going into that third season, I was really excited to go out and show what I could do. What also helped a lot was um, I had great teammates and so it became kind of like the best kept secret because all my teammates knew the kind of player I was like in that second year when I couldn't get a jersey and I'm watching games from the sideline with their sweatsuit on. I'm pissed like I allow myself to be angry. Sometimes I don't act out in anger towards people or disrespect people or um, displace my my feelings onto something else. I had to play displace it on the practice. Like I would go to practice on Wednesday and the starters on defense would be like, Hey Julius, what do you think about um, being chill today? What do you think about not running so hard? And I'd be like, fuck you.
0: How do you take, how do you take that? Like, and cause it feels like it's a fine line. And even that, that book I was talking about uh, by Tim Grover talks about this too, because Michael Jordan had the ability to play angry very, very similarly to kind of what you were saying could play angry, but not every player can, because that's an emotion, right? You take that and it is a fine line because it can send you into places that put you out of your game, take you out of the zone, put you in a, a really bad headspace. How did you take that anger, that frustration? You said rage, take that rage and harness that into just efficiency, value, focus. How how did you do that? You know,
1: I think there is an emotion regulation and an ability to direct your anger, your frustration in the direction that you want it to go. Because right, is it, what do we typically think of when we think about somebody being angry? We think about this uncontrolled anger, this person mm-hmm. that's externalizing their feelings. They're making everybody around them uncomfortable. They're harming people. They're speaking to people in ways that's um, that they don't deserve. But then some people are able to take that emotion of anger and turn it into a laser beam. And then they can just shoot it at just the thing they wanted to shoot it at. And for me, that's what I would do. Like I would take that anger that I had because I didn't play, and I would use it to run full speed every rep, every practice to where the guys on defense are like, bro, like you're killing me. This this is this is crazy. You gotta slow down. Like I literally had the defensive coordinator come to me and say, hey, Julius, on Saturdays, you can't run so fast. You have to keep this under control. And um, I think a lot of it just comes from focus. Like, really, like, we understand that some of the best athletes, some of the best executives, some of the best military personnel, they have this focus power that's just unique. And once you learn how to control the emotions that you have within you, and focus them in the ways that are aligned with your values and what you're after, you become extremely powerful. And that's one of the things that I really encourage people to do is develop an emotional intelligence, right? Be able to say, I'm angry and I'm angry because of, and because I'm angry, I'm going to then do this. And then that's how you become really focused on what you're, what you're gonna use that for. Like I take every slight, I take every underdog experience. I take every person doubting me, every rough experience, like tearing your ankle ligament on the first catch in NFL. And I turn them into logs and I stoke my inner fire with those.
0: You sound like Michael Jordan from The Last Dance. I got I to gotta be honest with you. <laughs> you sound like, I mean, he, he remembers everything and he's got those logs and he took everything and that was kindling, right?
1: Yep. Everything yeah. every for me is, that's what I do. I mean, it was, It was when I got, when I was playing football and people told me, Julius, we don't pay you to think, we pay you to run. And it would piss me off because I felt like thinking was a strength of mine. And I felt like people weren't able to see something that I thought I identified with. And that was one of my catalysts for wanting to go to school and get a doctorate in a challenging discipline like clinical psychology. And then to become a researcher in neuroscience and now to be sitting in executive positions and academic boards and societies, because if you don't believe it that I can do it and you don't believe I have it in me, I don't really care. Cause I'm going to show you. Yeah. like I'm going to show you what I can do. I don't, I don't have to have all this um, external belief in what I can do. And that's what that, that fire, I think that you're, you're seeing is, this is an internal belief. And when you have a confidence of, I may not be good now, but I won't rest until I get good, you start to understand that you can take on any challenge. And that's why when I teach mental performance, that's why I had to break that down and bottle it into five things so that I can show anybody, you can do whatever it is you're after. Mm-hmm. Like, Actually, I take it back. There's only one excuse I allow. That's genetics. Genetics, wait. There's nothing you could do about that. If I want to go (laughs) run the 100 meters in the Olympics, I I probably didn't have enough genetic speed to do that. Some people might want to be an outstanding um, middle linebacker, but if you're 160, it's just going to be rough. So um, the only excuse we really have is genetics. And I'm a believer that people can achieve whatever they're after as long as they deploy the particular or the correct skills at the right time.
0: So... Tell me this. I mean, we, we talked about harnessing anger and rage, um, but, but before we get there, I, I agree with everything you said. One of the things that I think all the time is throughout my entire life, I mean, there's been times where people have looked and said, "You that's a little crazy, maybe not do that. And I think about it and say, I'm not crazy, I'm just not you right? Mm -hmm. I think everybody, everybody puts for whatever reason, they put their own limitations on themselves. And if you take that cap off and you say, you know what, I want to see what I could do. I don't, I don't want to see what people think I can do. I want to see what I can actually do. My, my question to you in that regard is you've obviously taken that cap off. You've said, I want to maximize everything I can possibly be from a potential potential perspective how do you handle engaging with people that put limitations on your on themselves knowing full well that they are capable of so much more david goggin's had, if you're if you know david goggin's he calls this like the 40% rule right everybody's hitting like 40% of their potential but you have said i'm taking the cap off i'm going to do i'm going to reach my maximum potential whatever it takes and then looking at other people that you're interacting with knowing full well that they're not how do you how do you engage with those folks? Yeah, it's it can be challenging
1: um, to be able to get a person to move from this is the vision I have for my life to pursuing it. What's so crazy to me, and I, I do personal coaching, I do business coaching, and every single person has this vision for what they would love to come in their life. I'm and I'm sure that. Anybody listening is going to think like, yeah, there's this thing I've been thinking about. Like if I allow my mind to go there, I can fantasize about that vision would be great. But some people go, okay, let me start pursuing it. And some people are inhibited. And they they have this fear or whatever that's keeping them from taking that first step. So one way I like to say it to people, you tell me what you think about this. I just look at people and I say, why don't you give your miracles a chance to happen? Simple as that. Give Allow your miracle, yourself to dream. Just give your miracle a chance to yeah. happen. It can't happen if you don't start going. The worst you can say is didn't happen. But there's this inkling, this possibility that it can. And if you pursue it, and even if the v- original vision you have, you don't attain, like think about how far along you're going to be. Think about this new place that you'll be at because you took 10,000 steps in that direction. And when people start to say, it doesn't matter if I'm unsuccessful, what matters most is that I refuse to not let myself try, then they really become great at um, getting the most out of their potential.
0: At least put yourself in the game, I think is kind of what you're saying. The man of the arena. It, the man in the arena. Exactly. I think about that all the time and uh, at least give yourself a chance. So uh, they say uh, the game's not played on paper, right? If it was outcome, I mean, we wouldn't have the 1980 miracle. We would have a lot of different things. Yep. So I think having that type of mindset and uh, as we go into, and this is where I was going before with this question, we talk about anger and rage and frustration. I would imagine going from that next season. And you know what I'm talking about? And you get to the Super Bowl. You have one of the best seasons of your career, um, arguably the best tight end in the league. You go to the Super Bowl, and you lose. And you don't just lose; you lose by a lot. And yep. it's a, it's a it's a big blow. How do you take one of your lowest points and turn it into one of the highest points? Which is almost the identical season statistically. You went out, put on another show and won the Super Bowl. How do you flip that switch to go from the lowest to the highest point in your career?
1: I remind myself, who am I to think that I'm gonna make it through this life without being punched by life? Sometimes I really sit and I look at somebody and I go, what's so special about you that you didn't think that you could, that you didn't think that coming to earth was gonna mean That you are going to endure and experience tremendous suffering from certain things in life. No one gets out of this life without tremendous experiences of suffering. This is just the human condition. But we live in a society that is um, is so focused on avoiding sensations that might be uncomfortable. That we can't imagine why this is happening to me, right? Like I talk to people as as a in the hospital, right? Why is this me? And I tell them, zoom out a little bit. There's 96 rooms in this hospital. Every room is full. All people are gonna have these experiences where life rocks you. I'm not going to be surprised when life rocks me. Life has been rocking me since I was a kid. I'm just always gonna pop up. I teach people, resilience means accepting this harsh, real reality of what it means to live on earth and then having the courage to endure all the unwanted experiences that are gonna come along the way. For me, that's emotional intelligence. Like we talk about what's emotional intelligence, it's not just being able to use emotion words, it's being able to experience emotion, And stay on the path that you're on. What happens is fear, anger, sadness. They come like storms and they blow us off track. And some people don't walk back to their track and and persevere. Sometimes you you get afraid and you just huddle up and stay. Sometimes you get really sad and you just huddle up and stay. Sometimes you get angry and you go off in all kinds of other directions. But if you're resilient you expect life to come at you. And when it shows up with that punch, you take it on the chin. You acknowledge how it made you feel, but you say, that doesn't matter. I'm going to get back up and I'm going to keep
0: heading that direction. Man, I got a, I got a couple more questions for you, but I feel like that was a mic drop. <laughs> I like that. No, I, I, think that's, I think that's an awesome mentality. I like how you define resilience because it's so important. And I think that there's, I mean, everybody, one of the things that I think about, When we think about the pandemic, right? We all experienced the exact same thing for the most part. It was, it was a, and it's not just in the United States, it's all over the world. And you can see the people that really took it as an opportunity to grow and learn and, and get better and other people that use it as an excuse. And I think that's just personifies how we can approach life is there's always going to be that thing. Right. And you either have the mindset of pointing to it and saying, that's the reason why. Or pointing to it and saying, that's the reason why I succeeded.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the
0: reason why I grew. That's the reason why I got better. Um, and it's just, it's just a, a mindset. It's a mentality. Um, and speaking of mindset and mentality, before we kind of, I want to shift off of your football career a little bit, but before we do that, I, we, we touched on at the very beginning, you and Austin Collie played under Peyton Manning. What's something that even to this day you think about, that you learned from him, whether it's leadership, no matter what it is, but something that you think about that you feel like has helped you grow. And I'm guessing there's probably a lot of things, but but just something that that kind of pops in your head first. Well, there's
1: there's two things that pop into my head first. And one of them I actually think about a lot. One of them I actually can't get out of my head so much that um, I text paid the other day and I was like, bro, next time like I'm in your city, we got to meet because – um, he doesn't know that I have this question that I ask, I need to ask him. But since you asked that question, like that's the one that pops up. But the first thing I learned from Peyton was leadership. Um, at 23 years old, I was held to the highest standard that i would ever been held to in my entire life. And from that moment at 23 years old, the standard hasn't slipped. I learned what it takes to be a part of the statistically greatest offense in NFL history. I learned what it takes to be a part of a band that gets to play on the field with, in my opinion, one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. And he held everyone accountable, but he held no one more accountable than he held himself. He was the first person to say, hey, guys, I messed that one up. That one was on me. He was the first person to say, hey, were you supposed to be here at eight? That doesn't mean 801. He's the first person to say, I don't care if I told you what to do on Tuesday. I need you to remember on Sunday when the game comes. If it's in the playbook, it's up, right? This extremely high standard. What I've realized in life is some people are shying away from being held to a high standard. They find it uncomfortable. They say, well, that's not fair. Why do you, why do you want that from me? Why do you demand that from me? And I always say, submit yourself to it. If there's a person a workplace holding you to the highest standard you've ever experienced. Submit yourself to the standard and in, in develop it and achieve it and watch what will happen in your life. Like that is, that is key. So the first element of what makes Peyton a great leader is the standard that he demands from everybody associated with that offense and what they're doing as a team. And the second thing is the humility that came with his leadership. He said something to me that I've never experienced after playing with Peyton. Like, here I am, I'm 23, 24 years old, something like that. Um, Played football for what, two, three, four years at this time in my my career. And he would always ask me, hey, Julius, what do you see out there? What do you want to run? What route do you like? And I would say, wait, somebody asking me like what I see? What route i want to run and i would say hey Peyton, i'm going to run this and he would say okay go out there and run it and then he would throw it and i was like this is phenomenal here this person that is vastly less experienced than Peyton knows so much less but he's saying i can't have eyes everywhere i'm, I'm humble enough to know that the people that are down there in, in this side of the field or You know, sometimes people say, "Well, you know, the uppers at our company—they never ask for our feedback. They never ask what we're seeing. We're down in the factory, we're out in the field." Peyton was not one of those leaders that said, "Listen to me, I'm always right. Let me tell you what you're seeing over there." He would ask you, "What do you see? What do you want to run?" And and that's the question that I'm dying to ask him: Is how did he? Why was he a kind of person, a kind of leader? They would ask you that question, like, what about his leadership or what about what I was doing gave him enough trust to ask me that? And like, and and that's a burning thing that I have to find out because that's a leadership skill that I rarely ever see, not just in sports, but in in company management and company executives. If every executive had that, I think they'd get better results.
0: When I think I, I mean I've, I have my own thoughts and I'm going to reach back out to you because I want to know the answer to that, but I also think he puts trust in everybody around him, right? If you're there, you're there for a reason. Um, it's it kind of ties back to what we talked about around imposter syndrome. One of the ways that I cope with that is I try to I try to look at the people around me that I have confidence in. and when I look and see they have confidence in me, that that kind of fills my bucket a little bit. Peyton trusts his coaches. He he trusts the players around him and he knows his coaches looked at you and said, you are the best tight end we have, and he's going to be on the field and he's going to help us win games. So Peyton wants to know, what is our best tight end see? What does he do? And he has that universal trust to be able to get that insight from you and assimilate it and pull it into whatever he's thinking. Um, Now that takes an insane amount of trust, um, but I, obviously he has learned that that's something that makes him better, makes the team better. Yeah no, um,
1: as you were talking, I could um, just—I was thinking maybe it's because of the standard that he knew you could be held to. That's true. If I would have gave him bad reconnaissance, (laughs) yeah. Hey man, this corner's sitting on everything, and then he goes to throw the stutter, and it's intercepted because he's not sitting on everything. Yeah, it's probably done right there. Yep. But he probably understood. Of the standard he was demanding, and then knowing that I was able to continue meeting it, so some some part of trust is earned. And when you hold a person to a really high standard and they're able to um, to meet that standard, then you're like, okay, well now I have more belief in what may be happening. Um, but I also think it's interesting that no ever no qu- other quarterback ever asked that. No other team ever accepted me coming to them. Even when I was an established pro, like veteran, top tight end in the league. Hey, guys, these are ideas I have. These are things I think we should be doing. These are things that I would like to do. Every time I was silenced, no other team, no other quarterback ever asked me. And here I am thinking, one one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time asks, what do you see and what do you like? And then all these people underneath that, to varying degrees, they didn't have that in them.
0: That's special. What that's also leadership think, at a different level. Think about what that did for you too. Peyton knows that he asked those questions, and you're not going to let him down, right? And I think that's a good lesson for for leaders out there. Is if you give that type of confidence for you, to your team, you give that type of trust in your team they are going to move heaven and earth to make sure they're successful for you. You might've been wrong and you might've said that corner sitting on everything, but I can almost guarantee that if he didn't sit, you would make sure that ball wasn't intercepted because you're not going to fail and you're not going to give him, you're not going to give him a reason not to do it again. Right? So I think instilling that confidence in the people around him is probably something that he was trying to do too. Yeah. And in,
1: in addition to, instilling confidence in everyone around you. I think a strong team is really rooted in shared responsibility. He could have said, no, 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 no. I want all the responsibility. Like you said, this trust factor. The only person I can trust around here is me. I'm the leader. I'm going to take on all responsibility. And you guys are pawns and you all go do what I say. He was different. When you create a culture of shared responsibility, you create a culture of increased responsibility on my part. Like you said, if that corner witness sat and he would have threw it, that's not my responsibility. That was my call. Mm -hmm. The the extra motivation, the extra neurophysiological drive to go create um, an okay situation out of a bad one that was your call is just different. When you're just telling people orders, and you're not giving them input, sometimes they don't care if it goes good. It's hard to care about things that we're not responsible for. It's like every parent realizes it. Like Once you become a parent, if you're a half decent one, you get this responsibility for this other life, and you show up to that in a way that you couldn't have showed up to that, anything else like that. And I think that that, that it's really good that you pointed that out. It's like, there's a shared responsibility in great teams and great leaders share responsibility because they believe and have confidence in their team.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, as, we're, as we're closing out, I, you, you alluded to it earlier, and, and arguably one of the coolest things you've done is you retired at 30 and you, you're pursuing your doctorate in psychology. What motivated you? To do that? I know you're, you're looking to focus on CTE and, and other things around mental health, but what was the big motivation for you to do that?
1: You know, I, I'm i a believer and I'm a person of faith and some I had some feeling inside of me that in, as I was an athlete that I don't know if I was just created to be an athlete. I don't know if my whole time on earth was supposed to be focused and centered around me, but just being an athlete. And When I signed my contract, In jacksonville to become the highest paid tight end in the nfl i was so overwhelmed with gratitude and i remember sitting in my car and i was just praying and i started having all these thoughts and i said you know what i don't know what it is but lord whenever you call me i'm gonna answer whenever you call me i don't know what you're gonna ask me to do but i'm gonna answer and i'm just going on playing my career and around year seven i got this feeling this overwhelming compassion for what other humans were suffering from. And I started to really love this feeling of helping other people achieve the things that they were after to help them with the things that they were going through. And it actually started to feel better to me than achieving my own things. And that inner shift really was in conflict with what I was doing professionally. And as that season was going, I was like, "Well, maybe it's time for me to transition. Maybe I'm supposed to be doing something where I'm helping people in the way that I feel like I'm supposed to be doing it." So I made the decision to step away from the game, and I didn't—I didn't know what I was going to do. I needed to spend some time, and I really took this journey into self. I wrote this article about it on Players' Tribune. And, um, in that journey into self, I finally realized my purpose, and my purpose is to help people reduce their physical, mental, and emotional pain. And my passion is to help people get better. And so I said, What is aligned with this passion and this purpose from this inner reflection? And I thought a good way to do that would be to go learn psychology. I thought that the thing I needed to prove to myself was that I could match the greatest intellectual challenge. Like I felt like I had overcome great physical mountains, great uh, mastery mountains, like, you know, being a college basketball player. You're not the best in the world, but you're really at the top of a basketball mountain. Um, being an NFL football player, top of that mountain, what did I do to challenge myself intellectually? How do I realize where my limits are if I don't challenge myself in that way? So those things kind of came together. And um, I actually wrote the article, talked about fear. I wrote the article in the Players' Tribune saying I'm going back to school to get a doctorate before I was even accepted into a doctoral program. Like something in my head, I had this anxiety, like, well, you can't write this, you can't write this, this it's article. the dif-
0: difference between confidence and cockiness. Yeah. Like you knew you were, you knew we were going to do whatever it took to get in. That was, that was the last thing on your mind. That's what well,
1: I told myself. Well, if you write it and you put it out there and how accountability, you, you got to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I told myself, why are you always afraid? Why are you always afraid first? You didn't even try. It. You didn't even know that you can't do it. Why is this fear the first thing that always shows up at your doorstep? Well, that's just my temperament. That's my trait anxiety. Like I, I have higher trait anxiety than most people because if I think about a plan, something in the back of my head goes, "Well, there's all things that could go wrong." And I tell myself, "Thank you, give, thank you for giving me that advice." But I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna put it down, and I'm gonna achieve it because I'm gonna do the things that I say. And after I wrote that, I was like, well, I don't know what's coming on this ride, but I got to finish this ride because I said I was going to do it. Um, I'm five years in, like half a decade, um, finished, up my, finished up my last two classes this semester, um, passed my clinical competency exams, 2,000 hours of uh, training in hospitals and community mental health settings, res- published research author. I mean, This is what happens when you give your miracles a chance to happen. This is what happens when you tell that little voice, thank you, but I'm going to go off with this vision and I'm going to chase it. And um, I'm pretty sure for the rest of my life, whenever I have an idea, uh, fear is going to show up and it's going to tell me, stop, don't go that way. Um, But I'm really good now at recognizing it, not trying to push it away. Now I just welcome fear with me on my journey. Whenever there's an emotion that shows up, Mm -hmm. I never try to push it away. I don't, I don't struggle and fight with emotions. I just welcome them. Like if today I got to go do this afraid, I do it afraid. If today I'm sad, I, I do the thing sad. If I'm angry, I do the thing angry. And if more humans could recognize our ability to carry that emotion today with us, with all the other things that are happening, um, we can become more resilient. We can get the things that we're after and we can give our miracles a chance to happen.
0: No, I think that's really well said. One of the another another book I'm I'm reading uh, or have read is called Mastering Fear. Um, it's written by a, a former Navy SEAL, and one of the things he talks about is not not making fear an inhibitor, but making fear a galvanizing force. How can you take it and use it as fuel? Use it as energy to to go accomplish what you're trying to do, and use that as an adrenaline rush. And if you can do that, because we're all going to do things we're afraid of. Um, but if we can do that and we can, we can use that as a drive, it'll only make us more successful. Um, as, as we wrap up, I'm going to use this last question for selfish purposes. You, you not only have experience playing in the NFL, playing football at the highest level, but you're now having experience studying psychology, the inner workings around CTE and kind of what the game can do. So my last question is this, my nine-year-old is advocating. And I think you know where this question is going. He is advocating to play, play football. He loves football. It is his favorite sport. And he's done flag football. We did NFL flag a few times, but he wants to play contact football. What would your advice be for him? No, I think that um,
1: this is a great question. And this is one of the questions that I would have had no answer for five years ago, but through a lot of the study, um of the literature that i've done on you know what leads to cognitive decline cte um, sports-related concussions repeated uh, head impacts um through my role as an advisory board member at the football players health study at harvard which is a hundred million dollar study that the nfl paid to have harvard researchers look at the health and well-being of their former athletes to reading Boston University's studies on CTE and the CTE prevalence and the brains that they've um, looked at after people have died. I break it down this way and I think this is going to be really helpful for you. And it'll be really helpful for any parent that's thinking about their kids playing football. So some of the facts are still at debate. So forgive me for that. But the percentage of people that only played high school football, that they find CTE in is extremely minimal, less than 1%, maybe less than a half percent. So the way I look at it is, if you are playing football and you wanna play football and you're like most of every single American where football ends after high school, it's not something that you need to be overly concerned with. That's one. Number two, they show that most people that played college football, are probably going to be fine. Yes, there are a percentage of people that played NFL professional football with a lot of snaps for a certain amount of years that do experience this terrible illness and disease known as CTE, that do experience cognitive decline. But even the people surveyed by the football players health study, it's not... 30% of people that experience cognitive decline. Like we're just talking about cognitive decline. The whole CTE thing, we're going to know as people die and what that happens. But most NFL players don't even experience cognitive decline. Most. College, hardly any. High school, statistically none. So that's the way I look at it. That's the way I think about that decision for my sons. Like, look, check this out. If you get to a point where you're a really, really good college football player and CTE is still on your mind and you're thinking about, should I go play this game for eight to 10 years? Ask yourself that question then. Mm -hmm. But if you're thinking about playing Pop Warner, if you're thinking about playing high school, um, I think the data is starting to show that those kids go on and live productive, successful lives. Um, The reasons, I don't know, I have minds that my reasons why i think about but um i don't think that it's a for me it's a non-issue until somebody is considering playing nfl football and then i told those people that
0: most nfl players don't experience cognitive decline awesome well I, I appreciate that answer and um i'm sure my nine-year-old would appreciate that answer too he's he's chomping at the bit and i think um, He's the type of kid that I think wants to try everything. So it, it might be a year or two that he wants to play. It might be a year or two he goes to something else. But I think knowing that there's a little bit more safety in doing that is is good to know. Yeah. Hey, Julius, I, I can't thank you enough for joining. I I feel incredibly fortunate. to kind of had a front row seat to this conversation and, and learned so much from you. And I know the listeners did too. So thank you again. Best of luck as you're kind of closing out your doctorate. Um, and you can bet I'll be following up to, to learn, uh, Peyton's answer to that question. Cause I want to, I want to know and grow at the same time. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity,
1: um, to really tell some of my story, talk about some of the areas that I've spent a lot of time studying. And, you know, like I said, from the beginning, I hope it's beneficial for the listeners
0: and, um, you can have me on and we'll do it again anytime. All right, guys, that wraps up episode 100. Thank you again. Like I said, if you liked what you heard, hit subscribe, leave a rating, and thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to our conversation. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.